All right, good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez. Um, I'm so glad that you are here. I want to welcome you, uh, those of you that are worshiping in person. I also want to welcome those of you that are worshiping with us online. Um, today, we are starting a part two of our uh, series in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're using one of our journals, um, you know that we already studying some, uh, a part of the Gospel of Matthew that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were coming in this morning, you probably got, uh, got to see one of these little stickers. So if you are using the journals, please pick it up. Um, this indicates that we are studying a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, today is, is a really interesting day. Um, because when we, when we started thinking about this sermon and we we're thinking about what we, we, we talked about today, we actually were not putting things together. It, just, it was one of those things that the Spirit was doing ahead of time. What I find that interesting, though, is that as I was hearing uh, Wally and, and Kyle and everything that they're talking about, and as I, as I hear what the Lord is doing in that part of the world in the midst of brokenness and war and pain and struggle, and, and as I hear what the churches are doing and missionaries are doing, I only have one question. Only one question. This happens to the first service and it happened again right now. It's just, what is it that these people believe? That leads them to live that way. What is it that these pastors and missionaries and Christians living in that part of the world believe, truly believe that is leaving them and pushing them to live that way? Because whatever they believe, that's what we need here in this part of the world as well. Let me read to you um, some of the stuff that we go through in this part of the world. These are some statistics based on only the stuff that happened last year. 25,000 people died because of homicide in the United States last year. About a million people died because of COVID in the United States last year. More than 600,000 children were victims of abortion last year. About, about 91,000 people died of an overdose last year. One of every eight children is living with a parent with some sort of addiction. That was just last year. About 20% of our adult uh, population is experiencing some sort of mental health issue. 2.5 million youth are struggling with depression, according to that was last year. And in 2020, about 1 million and a half people got married, 1.5. And in the same year, about 600,000 people got divorced. And those statistics paint the picture, in addition to what we're seeing happening in other parts of the world, of the, for anything and everything that is happening in this part of the world. And I know that you hear this and you have different reactions and you think different things. Some of you might think like, well, Hannibal is in a cheerful spirit today. Oh, well, this is the worst day to come to church. Not only the preacher is depressing, but they just ask me for money. <laughs> for some of us, the attitude is to run and to run fast and to play it safe. For some of the people, it's to think that the best way to survive this is to create isolated Christian communities so we don't get infected by the problems of the world. For some other people... It's more like a positive thinking, thinking we should have a positive attitude, pretending that nothing is happening and these two shall pass. 
And for some, we hear something like this and we lose hope. And we get paralyzed by fear. And what I want to show you today is that in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a different perspective. I wanted to make the argument that Wally and all the missionaries in, in Europe and all these churches in Europe and all these things that we hear and what they believed, in my opinion, was precisely the first part of the gospel of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want, what I want to show you today is that God in Jesus is calling us not to pretend that there is no pain or ugliness or hurt or evil in the world, but to, for us to have a completely different perspective, a countercultural perspective in which we don't run, we don't, we don't pretend, we, we are not paralyzed by fear, but instead we get in. We get dirty, we love different, we suffer different, and we care for people different. That Christianity is not this movement of people that are paralyzed once again by fear, that we don't run, we don't pretend, we don't excuse, and yet the Lord calls us to run into the opposite direction. To get into people's mess. Because we are a different community if you're a Christian. It's interesting that in verse 14, Jesus calls believers a town that could also be translated as a city. A city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Notice that it's a group of people called a city. An alternate society, a city that lives within the city, a town that lives within the town. A counterculture population or community. People that think different and love different. Citizens of this kingdom that live for a bigger purpose, more beautiful purpose than, than our own personal happiness and security. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so radical. And today I want to invite you to consider three things that this text says about our citizenship of this city within the city. It says that we're going to see a citizen, the citizen's call, the citizen's attitude, and the citizen's power. Call, attitude, and power. I need you to do me a favor just to make you a little bit more uncomfortable. Look at the person next to you and say to that person, you exist for something bigger than yourself. Go ahead. Let's go with the first point, the citizen's call. If you know anything about Jesus, if you have read the Gospels ever in your life, one thing that is so obvious about Jesus is that he was an amazing teacher. He had the ability to take complicated concepts and communicate them in a way that were so simple to understand. That's why you never see Jesus using big words and super complex concepts. That's part of the reason why I do the same thing. One, because I don't know the big words. And two, because Jesus teach me how to teach. And one of the tools he uses is using these metaphors or, or illustrations or images, once again, to help believers understand profound concepts in simple ways. 
And in the text, right at the bottom of the text we read, he calls believers, this city within the city, this counterculture community, salt and light. Can you say salt and light? In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. What is interesting about these two images is that in both images, he's telling us two things. He tells us what he expects of his church to be, and he also tells us how we function in this broken world. He tells us what he expects of us and how to function as light and salt in the midst of brokenness. So let's look at the first one, salt. Verse 13, it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, in the ancient world, salt had two purposes, which is, I think, what Jesus is trying to communicate to us today. One is a familiar one, and the other one is a not, not, so, not so familiar See, in the first century world, salt, just like today, was meant to add flavor, was a condiment. I'm sure that you know this because how many people actually eat food without salt? Is there any one of you guys out there so we could pray for you? Okay. (laughs) But the idea is that if you have food without salt, you might be able to endure that like one meal or maybe one day, but after that, food is just nasty. You know how I learned that when I was a youth pastor? Um, we used to do this survival camp, and we would take all of our students to this part of south, side, uh, south part of Illinois, a huge forest, and we would go for five days. And one of the things that we did for the students is we would give them food without salt. And at the beginning of the journey, all the kids just like, yeah, I could do it. I could survive this. But by the end of the trip, they hated us. Because food without salt is just nasty. So you might be wondering, what was the purpose of that? Why did you guys do that? Well, we were teaching kids um, contentment and gratitude, which it went south because at the end of that trip, they didn't experience any of that. They were just angry people. (laughs) That's what happens when you don't have salt. (laughs) But look at what Jesus says. You are a condiment in this broken world. You ought to bring flavor to this broken world. You ought to be salty people. Not salty people like modern people say you're salty, but salty in a sense that you bring goodness and beauty to a broken world. We don't run, we don't hide, we don't create our own monastic Christian communities, we don't separate ourselves from the world, we bring, we, 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 we penetrate all areas of society to bring beauty and goodness. That's your call if you're a Christian. That's my call if I'm a Christian. The second function of the word salty there is that salt uh, functions as a preservative. It, pre- it prevents decay. Think about salt for the first, um, salt as the first century uh, refrigerators. See, back in that context, in those days, since they didn't have what we have today, they would use salt to preserve the meat. You would bathe your meat in salt to keep it going so it doesn't, get, it go, it doesn't go bad. 
But notice what Jesus says. He says that Christians, this city, this town, this countercultural community, this city within the city, we don't run, we don't hide, we don't create our own monastic Christian communities, but we get into the world, we bring beauty and goodness, because as we do that, we are preventing the world from going to bad, from bad to worse. Just think for a second what we heard today. What would happen in Ukraine if someone like Wally and the pastors there and the missionaries there and the Christians there were not there? That's your call and that's my call. Your call and my call is to bring beauty and goodness, to add flavor, to prevent this world from going from bad to worse. And you do that in your school, and you do that at work, and you do that in your neighborhood, and you do that with your friends, and you do that with the people you know, and you do it in whatever place the Lord has placed you to be. Once again, we don't run, we don't hide, we don't pretend, we are not paralyzed by fear, we go in. We get dirty. We love sacrificially. The second metaphor is light. Look at where it says in verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, or its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Notice that it says that this is public light. You place yourself in a place that you illuminate people. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Light as salt penetrates, illuminates, it's a light into darkness. What does light mean then? Well, all throughout the New Testament, the word light is a synonym of truth means that not only we bring beauty and goodness, but we bring the truth, the truth of the gospel. What is interesting, though, is that he uses the phrase good deeds. And all throughout the New Testament, that phrase means the same thing. We serve people, we love people, we reach people with beauty, goodness, and truths through the things we do and the things we say. We don't create a dichotomy. We don't choose one of those two, which is doing both. That's what good deeds means. We share the truth of the gospel by proclamation and demonstration. This is what it means to be salt and light. I know that in modern culture, when we talk about sharing your faith, people really don't like when we say that. Actually, if that is your case, there might be people here who think that as Christians, we shouldn't share our faith. Because it's disrespectful, they would say. Because they got to respect my beliefs. You know what's interesting? The moment the person tells me, don't share your faith, that person is sharing their faith. When a person tells you, don't say anything about the gospel. That's a proclamation of what they believe. Therefore, we don't shy away from this. 
We are people of the kingdom. We are salt. We are light. We don't run. We don't hide. We don't pretend. We're not paralyzed by fear. We don't create our own Christian monastic communities. We penetrate society in all spheres of society, and we bring good, goodness, beauty, and truth. Now, I want to make the argument before moving to my next point that we have something that no other philosophy in the world, no other group or religious group in the world has. I want to make the argument that we have all the reasons in the world to be able to do this and nobody else has valid reasons why to do it. Before I explain that, let me, let me point to you a few things that are interesting in the text. Did you notice that it says that we are a city, a hill, a town, not an individual? Meaning that if you want to be light and salt in the world, you don't get to be a lone ranger. You don't get to do this by yourself. You are part of the body of Christ. You cannot be a city by yourself, I hope you know. Number two. It gives you a reality check. Jesus says that we live in a broken world. Therefore, you and I should not have this utopian mentality in which one day we're going to be able to transform everything here and it's going to be perfect the way it is. That doesn't exist here. It will never exist here unless Jesus returns and makes everything else new again. See, we get to see things the way they are. We live in a broken world. And that's part of the reason why the Lord calls us to contribute to what he's doing. We do have a responsibility. We just don't have false expectations. That's why when you're trying to serve people and you're trying to reach people, some people. So I was thinking about the 400, 400 people that, that uh, they're serving in Ukraine and one person comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we would say amen to that. Nobody says that all 400 will come to the saving. We pray that all 400, but not all will come. And the third reason, the, thir the third thing that I want you to see there is that because of this passage and other passage all along the Bible, I, I dare to say that Christians have the foundational beliefs to actually believe in human rights. I don't think that that argument can be made by secular people. So if you are you're not Christian, just please forgive me and bear with me for a second. See, we understand as Christians that part of the reason why the Lord is calling us to be salt and light in the world is because we believe as Christians that all human beings have been created in the image of God. Amen? Amen. That means that all, all human beings have value and dignity. We don't get to choose which ones have more value and dignity. And it's precisely because of that that the Lord calls us to be light and salt, to bring beauty and goodness and truth into the world. Secular people will say the same thing, that we ought to help other people, human rights. The problem, though, is that they don't have the foundational beliefs to justify that. Some people, for example, some secular thinker, thinkers would say, well, no, no, we could justify that because we believe in a natural law, meaning that we believe that if we look at nature, nature tells you that we should care for one another. Now, I don't know if you ever watched National Geographic, but if you ever watch that, you can see that natural law doesn't help. 
So picture, I used this illustration before, but I have nothing better. So please forgive me because I'm probably going to use it once a year, every year for the rest of my life. <laughs> Think of a deer. If nature tells you that by we're supposed to care for other people, other beings, think of a deer. You know, a tiny, cozy, beautiful, tiny little deer. <laughs> picture it. And then picture a beautiful lion. Powerful, huge lion. I don't know if you've seen that. Those shows, man, it's amazing how magnificent those animals are. Like they run, and you can see the muscles running, right? And mane going running. And then picture them together. <laughs> and you see how cruel the lion is. And how vulnerable this deer is. And the lion does not display any kind of conscience. He jumps in the poor animal, bites the heck out of the animal, and then dies there. And you don't see the lion is like, oh, I'm sorry. Lord, thank you for your food. None of that stuff. <laughs> you know why? Because natural law believes in the survival of the fittest. The strong win, the weak die. Not in Christianity. We believe that if you're strong, the Lord gave you that strength to serve the weak. That if you have a lot, it's to share with those that have nothing. That whatever you are, you are to use for the sake and the well-being of other people. Why? Because all human beings have value and dignity. That we get into people's mess because they are worthy. That we don't run, that we don't hide, that we don't pretend, that we're not paralyzed by fear because people are worthy. So see, the secular mentality doesn't help, but Christianity does. And the second argument from a secular perspective is this, that we should help other people because of popular opinion. See, we should help other people because most people believe that we should help other people. You know what the problem is with that? It was popular opinion what justified slavery. It was popular opinion who voted for Hitler. Did you know that he was voted in? If popular opinion says that we should help people, popular opinion will says we should kill people. Therefore, Christianity offers something that no other philosophy offers. We actually have a foundational belief on why we do the things we do, why we should pursue bringing beauty and goodness and truth. Why is it that we go into the people's, into the world's mess to be salt and light? Here's something interesting, though. When you read the history of the world, and actually the history of all religious groups, you will realize that most people who believe that they had the truth tend to be oppressive. Did you know that? See, Hitler thought that he had the truth, and that's why he wanted to kill a ton of people. 
All the genocides in the world is the same thing. People believe that they have the truth and therefore they tend to be oppressive. The question for, Christ, for Christians, the question for you and the question for me is, how do we keep ourselves, if we have the truth, because the Bible says we have the truth, how do we keep ourselves from feeling that we are superior to the people we are called to serve? Let me put it this way. If you are trying to be salt and light and you think that you're better than them, it's better that you don't do anything at all. If you, don't, if you feel yourself superior, maybe there's something wrong. And this takes me to my second point, the citizen's attitude. See, I think that part of the reason why salt and light comes after the Beatitudes, these blessings, is because the blessings is in the blessings where we find what the, our attitude should be before we go even to serve people. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to walk you through the Beatitudes. And I want you to feel what the Lord is asking of you. And I want you to understand what the Lord expects of you before you even try to be salt and light to anybody else. And the Beatitudes are divided in two different sections. The first four is in our relationship with God. The second four is in our relationship with other people. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just explain it and then apply it. Ready? Say, I'm ready. Verse 3, it says, blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The phrase poor in the spirit means that we understand as Christians, this is for believers. This is the people who are already repented in chapter 4. The poor in the spirit is the people as believers that we understand that we are still spiritually broken. That we are still sinful people. That from a spiritual perspective, even the smallest, quote unquote, the smallest sin are cosmic sins because every sin is against a cosmic God. From this perspective, the poor in the spirit is someone that understands that I'm just as sinful as you are. You are just as sinful as I am. And we are just as sinful as people without Jesus. And that the only reason why we are here is because God is a God of grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You're truly not superior to anybody. You're still a sinful people. Why does that matter? Because if we want to be salt and light the way the Bible calls us to, you cannot go in with a superior mentality. Listen up, church. Your sins are not better than the sins of the unbeliever. Do, do you understand that? Because your sins are against a holy God. So whoever made you think that you're superior, you're reading the wrong Bible. This is what Michael Horton says. It is marvelous for God to be on our side in mercy. But it is dangerous to imagine that he's on our side because we are better than others. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The question you got to ask is mourn about what? Mourn about our spiritual condition. Mourn about our sin. 
And when you learn to see your sin first, you learn to exercise mercy and love toward other sinners. See, this is the thing. I think that many Christians, maybe none of the ones from Wheaton Bible Church, let's say other Christians. <laughs> but I think that many Christians, instead of mourn for other people's sins, we are angry at people's sins. You want me to prove it to you? Think about a person that has committed a sin that you really hate. Whatever that may be. Let me ask you this. What's the first thing you see in them? The image of God or their sin? Because if you cannot see the image of God, you have forgotten that you're just as sinful, as sinful as they are. Can you see why Jesus came to create a different community? No reason why he feels superior to anybody else. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, the word meek can be translated as gentle or humble. And I actually think that both translations are better, are good. And we should use them both. See, the humble person is the person that knows and understands that we're still sinful. But if you truly understand that you're sinful, then by nature, you will be gentle. Only the proud people are not gentle. This is why I think, and I please don't get offended, but if you get offended, that's okay. I think that there are Christians that should not have social media. Actually, I think that there's Christians that should not have email or a phone. Because if you, still, if you still don't see yourself as a broken person, you won't be humble and you won't be gentle. I've shared this with you before. When I look at Jesus, it's amazing to see how he treated sinful people. You know when he was harsh? To religious people. If you've never seen that, you should read the Gospels again. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is a perfect description of what it means to be a Christian, actually. A Christian is not a person who is not, doesn't struggle. A, person, a Christian is not a person who is not sinning. That's impossible. We have fallen nature. But a Christian, though, it tells you that it's a person that is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That you really want to be right with God. That you really want to live a moral, right life. That you really want to see right in this world. Indifference is not a Christian attitude. You should never be content with your sin. And you should never be content with seeing a broken world going to hell. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. I think that this is the easiest of all to explain. The only people that show mercy to others are the ones that understand that we have received mercy. I would actually make the argument that if you're not a merciful person, you should question your Christianity. You should question your salvation. Verse 9, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
I think that this one is talking about our motives and sincerity. I think that this one is talking about as Christians who really are doing things for the right motives and for the right cause and for the glory of God. We're not helping people because we need something out of them. We're helping people because not only that gives glory to God, but it's the best for them. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will, call, they will be called children of God. And on this one, if you have a journal or you have a Bible, I want you to underline or circle. Because that is not a description of modern-day Christians. We are here to seek reconciliation, not war. We want people to experience the peace of God, not the wrath of God. And if you do that well, I got great news for you. You will be persecuted. Merry Christmas. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people, notice the word when, people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Let, let me put it this way, church. If you suffer because you're annoying, if you suffer because you're not kind, if you suffer because you're not humble, if you suffer because you're not meek, if you suffer because you're not a peacemaker, if you suffer because you don't love people, you don't get the blessing. The blessing is only when we suffer because of him. And that is so worth it. To seek for beauty and goodness and truth. And the Bible says that if we do that, we will be persecuted and insulted and rejected. And it's so worth it. You know what that means? This is what it means. That if you truly embrace what the Bible calls us to be and do, you will be labeled as too liberal for the conservatives. And too conservative for the liberals. You will be rejected for both groups. From, uh, because of both groups. If you embrace the Bible and the Bible, what the Bible calls us to be, you will be too Democrat for the Republicans. And too Republican for the Democrats. If you embrace what the Bible calls us to be, you will be too modern for the traditionals and too traditional for the moderns. If you embrace what the Bible calls us to be, you will be too religious for the irreligious and too irreligious for the religious. If you truly embrace the Bible, you have to remember that you are a city within the city. A counterculture group of people. An alternate society. You are not supposed to fit in any of those worlds. Amen. 
have your politics, have your philosophy, have your values, but don't confuse those things with the Bible. You embrace the Bible, you don't belong there or there, you belong there. The kingdom of God. Question. What do you feel when you read the Beatitudes? I tell you what I feel. Fear. Because I'm being honest, if I'm being honest here, how, how can I live this? Listen, I, mean, I still struggle with pride. I might be the only one. I still struggle with not being gentle. I, I still struggle with not being meek. I, I still struggle with self-righteousness. I still struggle with not being merciful and full of grace. I still struggle because I don't want to suffer for Jesus. I still struggle with this. You know what the problem is with that? At least my problem, not your problem, but my problem, is that the text says that if I don't live like that, I don't get to have the second part of the Beatitudes. If I'm not poor in the spirit, then I will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If I don't mourn, then I will not find comfort. If I'm not meek, then I will not inherit the earth. If I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, I will not be filled. If I'm not merciful, I will not receive mercy. If I'm not a pure in heart, I will not see God. And if I'm not a peacemaker, I cannot be called a children of God. So what's the problem here? Is God trying to make you feel guilty? No. If you read the Bible right. The Beatitudes is something that we ought to aspire to be. But the Beatitudes at the end of the day is all about Jesus. Third point, the citizen's power. And I'm going to put it this way. There's only one person that deserves all the blessings of God. And that's not you and he's not me. And there's one person that has truly lived the way that the Beatitudes demand. And that is not you, and it's not me. Therefore, our only hope when we feel this is to run to Jesus and rest on who he is and how he lived and what he won for us. And from that comes the power to, for us to be salt and light without feeling superior to anybody else. So let me read this to you. We are blessed because when Jesus goes to the cross, he died like if he was poor in spirit, even though he was sinless, so the, so, the, so the proud people could be forgiven. And in him, we get to inherit the kingdom of heaven. See, we are blessed because when Jesus goes to the cross, he mourns not for his sins, but because of our sin. Father, please forgive them for they do not what they're doing. See, we are blessed because Jesus was the truly humble one, the one that allowed himself to be crucified in the place of the proud so we can inherit the earth. See, we are blessed because Jesus was truly the merciful one. He did not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gave us what he deserved. Instead, he takes the wrath of God and gives us the, the love of God. See, we are blessed because he was truly pure in heart. Because even as he goes to the cross, he does not seek anything from him for him but he seeks it all for us. See, we are blessed because Jesus is the true peacemaker. Because of what he did on the cross, he, he brings peace with God. We don't have to earn his approval. We don't, have, we don't need to buy his love. We have him as a father. 
See, we are blessed because he endured. And he didn't have to. You remember what happened the night before the crucifixion? Gethsemane. When he's feeling the weight of what he's about to come upon him. When he knows that he's going to experience the whole wrath of God. And he asked the Father, if it's possible for me to skip this cup, make it happen. But God never answers that prayer. Do you know why that prayer is there? So you and I know that Jesus had the chance to run. He had the chance to hide. He could have been paralyzed by fear, and yet he didn't. He chose you. He chose me. So we could go to the cross, take the wrath, so we could take his blessings. So here's the question, church. If we have that blessing from Jesus, why wouldn't you want to be a blessing to others? If we have been loved that way, why wouldn't you want to be salt and light to others? We don't run. We don't hide. We're not paralyzed by fear. We don't pretend that nothing is happening. We step into people's dirt and struggle and pain. And we bring goodness and beauty and truth. Let's pray. Lord, I could only say thank you. Thank you for living the life that I have not lived. Thank you for dying the dead I deserved. And thank you, Lord, for blessing me and blessing us beyond understanding. To know, Lord, that I have all those blessings, that we have all those blessings, that we will inherit the, the, the that we will, it, we, we will inherit kingdom and the earth and be fulfilled and find peace and comfort and joy. Not because of something we did, but because of what you did. Lord, I want to be an instrument in your hands. Lord, we want to be instrument in your hands. We do really want to be peacemakers, agents of restoration. We really want to bring peace and joy and hope, goodness, beauty, and truth. Can you help us become what we already are? Can you help us see Jesus in such a way that we live like him? Because at the end of the day, we exist for something bigger than simply our own happiness and security. Please make it happen. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...